All right, guys. Well, thank you all for coming. I know at 8 o'clock on a Saturday morning you want to be somewhere, especially uh, right here. So thank you all for being here early in the morning. Um, we uh, Did everyone get a hand, the handouts? There should be three handouts. If you have the one, the single piece of paper, the nine marks of a healthy church, that will be where we will be starting in just a moment. Before uh, we dive into this, we want to pray, and then we're also, I'm going to ask Jerry to give a little brief background kind of of how our church was kind of how it started and how we kind of got to where we are now. But uh, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you again just for uh, these people in this room. Thank you for our church. Uh, Lord, thank you for being so faithful to us over the last uh, six plus years. Uh, And thank you just for your continued uh, grace and kindness to us. Uh, Thank you for forgiving us when we fail. Thank you for sustaining us uh, by your grace and giving us a love for you and for uh, the Lord Jesus, and I pray, God, that this meeting would be edifying, beneficial, uh, that we could uh, properly present uh, what our church believes and what we teach and why it is that we believe and teach the things that we do from your word, and I pray that you would be honored during this time, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm, uh, normally, I would just like Mark not to uh, let me say anything as far as some of what we're talking to, but about this, I'm glad he let me uh, say how we kind of started here because I, he would have left out some key elements, which really is he himself. Oh no, Jerry, this is—we're not doing this. Yes, <clears> this is not what I'm signing up for. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this, we this. do need to do a little bit of this. This is uh, in the Lord's preparation of uh, North Avenue um, when Mark was like four and a half. Oh, he no. started speaking. Okay. Uh, really at Black Mountain and then at Colbert. What year do you think, Steve? <laughs> Why did I agree to this? <laughs> 19 years old was Mark? How old? Okay. When Mark was 19, he became the youth pastor, interim youth pastor at Colbert <laughs> Baptist. It was it was a great moment. He was great and, with the uh, games, wasn't it? It was what? Great with the games. Yeah. yeah. Started at the game. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Funzy is what we oh, call my. Mark over there. But it was just a, a, a great experience for the uh, the young people or a lot of young men um, over there that uh, that grew um, through that. Josh Krause would have been what change? Thirteen. 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 <laughs> so uh, that kind of started things. Um as far as uh, Mark ended up not getting a position at some other churches when he was uh, working at Watkinsville First Baptist, things the Lord would close the door on other things. We went to Black Mountain one time, uh, I guess a year or two before we um, planted North Avenue, and uh, and six guys there said, "Well, I'd really like to be part of." Uh, something where we could hear Mark really every Sunday. and That was uh, my mom and dad talking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> grandma, uh-huh. right, yeah. So <laughs> it was just a really uh, stirring time to say this maybe is, is the way the Lord's leading there. So uh, we started kicking the tires um, a little bit about planting a church. Um, how we got it central is a, uh, a fun story because we were just looking, we could not find a building, you know, and we thought, well, that's important to meet somewhere. Can't just have a tent in the yard. And um, when we came, somebody gave us a tip to say, well, Central's a pretty good location. Yeah, I'd go talk to those guys. And so when we did, 
Mark, you got to tell this because you tell this better. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, Jerry and I just thought, well, we, we, we know we want to have some families in the Madison County, Danielsville area coming to our church because that was already kind of in the mix. We also wanted people from Athens, Oconee area to be able to get to the church relatively easily. So we thought the ideal spot would be just off the loop at this area between the two spots that we were kind of aiming at, the people that we, we really were looking to target. And so um, we just, Jerry and I drove into the parking lot on a random day in the summer, I think, mm -hmm. and I was wearing like a Jurassic Park t-shirt, looking very professional. Jerry and I get out of the van. I look like I'm like 15 years old. We walk up to the door and we, we just knock on the door. We ring the doorbell here at Central and first the secretary goes and gets the pastor. The pastor comes out and just looks at us like, what are you, what are y'all doing here? And so we said, hey, can we... <laughs> We talked to you about something. He took us into our, his office, and uh, you kind of we kind of unpacked the yeah. vision of our church. And in about three minutes, he was really interested, which only by the Lord's grace could happen. And by the time we left, he was like, "Man, I want to run that by the deacons. That sounds great." And uh, and so just sure enough, by the Lord, and he still keeps standing. He's still listening. Sometimes he's no longer the pastor here at Central, right. but yeah, he still he still keeps up occasionally with with us. Yeah, and so just by the again by the Lord's grace and kindness, uh, that opened up a place to to meet, and we met with the deacons, and they were they knew Alan, um, who everybody knows Alan, and so they're like, well, you guys are probably legitimate. So we we ended up being able to meet here. So so anyway, you know, we're six and a half years in, I guess almost now, or. A little bit more than six, and um, and the Lord's just been very faithful. I think, as you know, we're not looking to grow quickly as far as numbers go, but when we have folks that uh, really desire to to love Christ, I, I think you could say, and Scott, you may have some insights on this, but I think we thought and still believe that we really wanted some sound teaching. And we wanted a great community, and we wanted just a lot of discipleship. Uh, and, and so that was kind of the, um, and then these nine marks uh, of, of a godly church, of a, of a church really became important as we started. And so, you know, I guess, Scott, do you have anything to add to that kind of early on? I think that's it. I mean, even people were saying, like, even we were thinking, how, how are we going to make it, like, financially and yeah, everything else? Make it. And it's never, finances have never been an issue whatsoever. Like, God has provided since the beginning, I think, met or exceeded expectations again and again and again. And yeah. just we haven't even, we haven't even hardly had to talk about finances at all. And it's just people have been so generous and gracious and yeah. God's been faithful. That's been a huge part of it. Mark? Yes. <clears throat> so if you have the <clears throat> nine mark sheet, we're actually going to start on the back of the sheet on number six. I thought... Membership would be a good place just to kind of kick things off here and talk about it for a moment. Now, we all have probably different church experiences in our backgrounds. Uh, some of us grew up in churches, maybe some of us did not, but we all kind of have different thoughts about what this might look like. Uh, I'm going to be both critical and I hope encouraging at the same time here. Uh, sometimes church membership is thought of as sort of like, well, why do we even need to do this? Like, What's the, what's the point of church membership? Is it even in the Bible? Is the, does the Bible have a verse that says you should join a local church? Um, how are we to think about that? And what is church membership for? What does it look like? The illustration I've given since the beginning of our church is you can think of it more as a consumer, which is more the way, you, uh, to give an illustration, the way you might think of choosing a restaurant. 
Uh, a consumer chooses a restaurant based on what it is for them, what it does for them. So if you're at a restaurant and there's a problem, like if, if, if somebody spills something, you don't clean it up. You know, the waiter or waitress comes over and they take, they take care of that. If, there's a, you know, if something is messed up, you don't do anything. You just kind of call on someone to do it. And the professionals, the paid people come and take care of that. And you're sort of, you pick your restaurant on a particular week based on what you want in that moment. So I'm feeling like uh, you know, going to an Italian place. I'm feeling like going to, uh, I want some Mexican food or whatever it may be. Wh whatever our feelings are determine where we go and what we do. And we, we really are kind of coming entitled as people serve me and I'm not here to contribute, I'm here to be served. And obviously that's not a biblical picture of how we are to be a part of a local church. A local church is, is rather more like a soccer team. Now, again, I have no athletic experience, so all of you will understand this better than I do, but uh, from what I understand, <laughs> it, I mean, I really think that rec league soccer has a better understanding of membership than most churches do. And that is a criticism. Uh, rec league soccer, do we know who's on the team? Do we know exactly who's on the team? Yeah, we've got a roster, and every single child or student is accounted for. They're on the team. And if they don't show up for practice week in and week out, there's going to be something. Like we're going to have to call that person figure out what's going on. They're probably not going to be in the game, right, if they're not coming to practice and these things. We have a, actually a higher level, probably, of accountability and membership with rec league soccer than we do with the Church of Christ, like the, the, the Bride of Christ. And so biblically, uh, you know, with, with a soccer team, you, you, you meet with the coaches. You kind of tell them what you're about. There might even be a tryout time where you see, okay, does this person really mean what they're saying? They then join the team officially. And the, joining the team is a two-way commitment. The, the player says, I want to join. And then the coaches say, we want you to join. It's like a two-way handshake, and there's a mutual agreement in both directions. And is there accountability in both directions? There is. And within that accountability structure, can you have friends who are on another soccer team? Yes. Can you even go, you know, and, and practice with another soccer team? Yes, but that does not make you part of that team, right? So you, you have actual players that you are on a sheet, you're a member together with, of like almost like a body, right? The body analogy. And you all have different positions, and you have accountability with each other. And if someone is, you know, uh, playing unfairly or being lazy or not showing up, should the teammates look into that and say, hey, like, where have you been? Like, we, we need you. There's going to be this mutual accountability because we know who's on the team and who's not. And the coaches obviously have to know who they're accountable for and who they're not. And I think oftentimes people think, if I attend a church for a certain amount of time, I am part of that church. That's not true. Biblically, there has to be this a formal sort of agreement between uh, the leadership of the church and the member to say, I'm on the team, and the, the leadership agrees, and now we're accountable for one another. There, there's that accountability structure that happens there. And um, so thoughts on that analogy or th those, that basic idea? I think... Um are like kind of going off what you said at the beginning, we have a very consumer mindset. Um, and I think a lot of people, and this is where, where I, I want to make sure we're really careful. Like there's a lot of earnest, genuine folks who think we're, we're creating a product for a consumer and the, the flashier, the savvier we can make our marketing for the product and the product itself, the, the more... Um, the, the better the response will be, the more consumers will get, the more customers will get. Um, and so a lot of people who will say, this is God's word, and they are fully committed to that. They will defend inerrancy to their, you know, the, that this is the word of God until their dying breath. But they, they, we have been immersed in a sea of, like you said, like a, a restaurant buffet kind of thing. And they can, you can read through the Bible and just not see what it's actually saying about like membership in a local church and the importance of it um and so 
you know, as it says here, the non, it's a privilege and a responsibility. Like, I think that's the biggest thing. It's when, when you think of membership in a local church, think partnership, something you're participating in. You're not a spectator on the side, you know, cheering on. Um, you're involved in the game. And, you know, however many people are there, like, who are actually members of a church, you're all in the game together. Um, and so, I, for me, that's just been, that's been really huge because, you know, as a new believer, you know, I was, you know, taught the word, various things like that, but this kind of understanding of a local church was foreign. It was, you know, can, what can we do to ramp up, you know, emotion, you know, get people in a moment, you know, of emotional vulnerability to respond, and um, it wasn't what we're talking about here. It was get you hooked for a moment, and once you get you hooked, well, that, that's all you need is that one moment, and after that, you know, it's okay, You're, we got you in that one time. Does well, this sense? might scare people. Yeah, that's good, Greg. This might scare people off. But, Mark, can you tell us how Dever even, they will excommunicate people for just not coming to church. Yes. Right? That that's yes. Even, and which has to be controversial Oh, that's days. extremely. And let, let me get to the, this one in just a second. Yeah. So, so turn in your Bible to the last chapter of Hebrews, chapter 13. I'm just going to look at one verse, uh, Hebrews 13, 17, which is just a, a great verse on this kind of a thing. Hebrews 13, verse 17. And this is what it says. It says, now please don't, understand, don't misunderstand. As I read this, I understand this has to do with church leadership and submission to authority, and it could sound like, well, what, what are you guys trying to say? But this is, we're just trying to be faithful to Scripture. Here's what uh, God's Word says. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account let them do this, that is, let them do their job uh, with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, do, do, if you look at this verse here, this implies, think about what this verse implies. It implies that any Christian, every Christian, is going to have specific leaders in a specific church that they are called to follow the leadership of. Do you see that implied in the verse? Because are you, are you called to submit to every pastor in every church? No, that makes no sense. Just like uh, you know, a, a wife submitting to the husband, a wives are not called to submit to men generally. They're called to submit to their, their own husband, right? That's a very different thing than wives submit to men. That's not what it says. So a wife is, is submissive to, his own, to her own husband. Here, Christians are called to submit to their leaders. Well, that means you have to have some leaders. And that means you have to be a member of a local church because it says here that the leaders are going to give an account for you, which means they have to know who they're responsible for, right? The shepherd has a particular flock, one shepherd is not responsible for all the sheep in the world. The, the shepherd is responsible to lead and guide a particular flock of sheep. And he must know exactly who his sheep are, and the sheep must know who their shepherd is. And so in th th this verse can only be obeyed. I don't know how it's to obey this verse than to say every Christian is responsible to be a member of a church where they have local leadership that they are called to submit to, and that leadership is responsible for that particular group of people. Do, do y'all see where we're getting that from in that kind of a text? So um, it's not... Leaders generally, it's leaders in a particular local church, and they are responsible particularly for those people. So, again, this is just, just trying to be as clear as I can on this. We, we are the four elders in our church, and we are not responsible for anyone who happens to visit our church. We are not going to give an account for everybody who visits our church. We are going to give an account for every particular member of our church before the Lord. And that's a, that's a biblical distinction there between those two different categories. Um, thoughts on that passage? 
Which is, I mean, so it's a weighty, it's a weighty thing for all four of us. Like, we will have to stand before God one day and give an account for every single member of our church. That means the members of our church are, in a special way, they're, they're our responsibility, and we should be praying for, for the members of this church. I mean, it's just, it's the two-way responsibility, like you're saying, but I think this, this verse is a very weighty verse for us, that we will have to stand before God and give an account for the specific members of North Avenue Church. So it's a weighty, weighty thing, but it is that it's that two-sided thing. The other thing I would just say about the membership aspect is the privilege, like Greg, you mentioned, and responsibility. Like, it's such a joy, I would say, just to be a part of a local church. Like, when Mark and I first became Christians, we didn't see the value of a local church. That's right. Uh, I would just go there. We would be we almost like a consumer. I would go there for the sermon. I love to hear my dad preach, yep. but I wasn't really folding my life into the <laughs> local church. But in the last six plus years of this church, it's like I've seen the value, the, the joy of just folding your life into the church. So I would say... Yes, there's a responsibility to it, but man, there's a joy. There's massive joy if you just fold your life in and give it, because the more you're around, it's like the soccer team, the more you're around that team, the more you love the guys on the team, or ladies on the team, the same in the church, the more you're around these people, the more you, you love them. I just, every time we would go to discussion group, every week I would see the same, like, eight to ten people, and that one, sun, one, one Thursday I just looked around the room and said, I felt like I genuinely loved the people in this room. I, just, I remember thinking that in, in my mind, so I would just say it's, it, it, see it as this it's incredible joy to be a part of, part of the body. To, you're missing out if you don't fold your life into it. So let's turn to Matthew 18. And again, in the next three Sunday sermons, I'm going to touch on some of these very same issues again. So you may hear some repetition, which is okay. But at Matthew 18, and we're also looking at the next mark. So we started on mark number six on your handout, and now we're moving to number seven, which Jerry just mentioned a second ago, uh, biblical church discipline. If biblical church membership sounds foreign to a lot of people, this sounds really foreign to an American church. Uh, I... I and again, I'm not trying to be uh, condemning about this, but I, I don't know a lot of churches who practice biblical church discipline at all. Uh, I mean, you, you could be at a church for 20 years and never see it done, uh, which you, you just wonder what's going on there. Because I think biblically, although this is not a popular thing, I think it is a biblical thing, and Jesus crystal clear commands us. So just follow along for a moment here. I'll start with the parable of the lost sheep. This is Matthew 18:10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now just pause there. Do you see the illustration of a local flock with a number, right? Think of, think of the membership of a local church. We have almost 100 members in our church. So it's like we have a flock of 100 almost, right? Like 90-something members. And so we have, we have a flock of 100. If one member of our church, one sheep, wanders off, it is in, diff, to different, in different ways, depending on how well we know them, we all have some kind of responsibility here when that one sheep wanders off. So like if, if a member of our church, like say you know a member of our church is Started, they're not really coming anymore. You find out that they're maybe hanging out, getting drunk on weekends, just to give a random example. They're starting to get, they're going bar hopping on the weekends and they're getting drunk and they're not coming to church and they're not coming to small group and they're not responding to phone calls or text messages. We have a responsibility to love that person enough to not just let them drift away, but to actually pursue them in love and to try to hold accountability with what's going on because they're beginning to fall into real unrepentant, sinful lifestyle. And we need to love them enough to not just let them go. There's a kind of mercifulness that is not merciful, which is to say, well, I don't want to be judgmental. Who am I to try to pursue this person? I'm no better than anybody else. I'm just going to let them wander into sin. That looks merciful and compassionate. It is not. Uh, th this right here is a severe mercy that we actually go after and love them enough to hold them up to accountable. 
hold them accountable. Look at verse 15. He, he explains what this means in more direct language without a parable. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, so if he repents, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to who? Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, treat them as an unbeliever. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Do you, do you get that? That means when we are obeying Jesus, and, and de, we say, say just to give another example, a boyfriend and girlfriend are members of our church. They're in their early 20s. They have a credible profession of faith. They're baptized believers. They love the Lord, at least seemingly, and we find out that they are sleeping together. And someone confronts them one-on-one, -on -one, and they say, yeah, we don't really, we're not going to stop. We love each other. We don't want to get married yet, but we're going to keep sleeping together. Okay, now what needs to happen? That one person needs to go find one or two other members of the church, right? This is what Jesus said. And they go to that person. Okay, now you got a group of two or three, and you say, listen, we love you guys too much to let y'all keep doing this. You've got to stop sleeping together. Like, you, you've got to do whatever you can to stop. And they say, yeah, no thanks. Then what do you have to do? If, and this, could, this could happen over the course of six months, right? But then at the end of the six months, when they're still sleeping together, you've got to take it to the church. Jesus says, tell it to the church. And then you tell it to the, now all the church together, maybe with a representative speaking on their behalf, says, you guys, this is not right. This is not what Jesus has commanded us. You've got to repent. You've got to stop. You've got to get accountability. You've got to stop. And they say, yeah, no thanks. Then Jesus says, you've got to remove them from membership. You've got to treat them as an unbeliever. Ban them from the Lord's table. And you don't do this with anger. You do this weeping. Like this is the, When this happens, there are tears in every eye in the room, hopefully, right? And you're going, oh my goodness, we, we love you too much to allow you to keep misrepresenting the name of Christ publicly. We, we are now revoking your membership. You're banned from the Lord's table. And now if, if you guys don't repent at this point, you're then outside the church and when he says whatever is loosed on earth is loosed in heaven, bound on earth is bound in heaven, he means the declaration the church is making, heaven is in agreement. Well, if, you, if you declare on, on earth this person is an unrepentant sin, heaven is in agreement with what's happening on earth because we're obeying what Jesus in heaven said for us to do. And if you don't follow that, look at verse 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Do you see? The church discipline is going on on earth, and who's in agreement in heaven? Jesus is. And then the famous verse, verse 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. How many of us have heard that verse applied to like a prayer meeting? It's not about a prayer meeting. Jesus is saying where two or three agree about excommunication, I'm in heaven, I'm with them on earth, and I'm in agreement with them. That's a, that's a verse about Jesus being in the midst of an excommunication moment. And Jesus goes, I agree. If they follow my rules and they remove this person, Jesus says, it's not unchrist-like. Christ is in their midst. Jesus, I am with you when you do that because you're, you're doing exactly what I command you to do. So thoughts on the severe mercy of church discipline. I just think it's so, I can understand why it's hard to do this because we live in a world that tolerance is the number one thing and when it's like who are you to do this kind of who are you to judge that kind of that kind of thought but I just mark what you're saying it re-establishes in our minds that this is how we love people we love people by an accountability and a real 
hurting for someone when they're going off the path. And, and we just need this. If we're going to have a heart for people, this has got to be um, part of our church, part of every church should be. But, but I can sure understand how it's uh, kind of gone out of vogue. Didn't you say in the old churches? I just looked at this a, again, yeah. It, say, Doc, that was amazing. There's a book by a professor named Greg Wills called Democratic Religion where he talks about Baptist churches in, guess what, the great state of Georgia, and he deals with them from pretty much the 1700s all the way through till past the Civil War. And this blew me away. In this, he did a lot of amazing research, going back into all the records of these churches all across Georgia. I don't know how he did all. I mean, it was, it was just a huge thing. But he said, just follow this. Before the Civil War, in the state of Georgia, in, in Southern Baptist churches, the average Baptist church put 3 to 4% of its members under discipline every year. And 2% of Southern Baptists were excommunicated from their churches annually across the state of Georgia. Over 40,000 people were excommunicated over the course of the first half of the 19th century. It's an unbelievable statistic. And when the Civil War happened, people were so shaken by the war that people didn't want to do discipline anymore. And over the next, really, once you mark the Civil War, after the Civil War, over the next 30 years, discipline almost disappeared. And for the last century, Almost no Southern Baptist churches practiced. If you go back to the 1950s, almost no Southern Baptist church practiced church discipline. The 1960s and 70s, almost nobody. It wasn't until Jay Adams showed up in the 80s writing books about discipline that people go, oh, this is actually biblical. Some people wrote books on it. And then in the 80s and 90s, it started making a comeback. And right now, it's probably bigger than it's been in, in a century in the Southern Baptist world. But it's still very foreign to a lot of people. But it used to be, I mean, there, there were quotes from the 1800s where people say things like this. When discipline leaves a church... Christ leaves with it. And people said, a church that doesn't practice discipline is not a true church. Those are the kind of things people were saying before the Civil War. And then in the last hundred years, that's almost fallen entirely off the tracks. But it is clearly taught here in, in Scripture. Seems more biblical what they were doing then than what we're doing now. And let me take you to another text. Turn to the right to 1 Corinthians 5. This is the other really strong, clear text on the same topic. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5. And I'll just start reading here because this text is really, I think... Pretty strong. And it deals with an embarrassing uh, sexual immorality situation in the first verse. 1 Corinthians 5 1. Scott, could you start reading there? Yeah, how much do you want me to read? I think read the whole chapter. The whole chapter. Okay, 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Okay, just pause there. So, again, we don't want to spend a long time thinking about this sin, but this is a guy probably sleeping with his stepmother is the most likely. He has his father's wife. Probably means he's sleeping with his stepmother. And uh, the Corinthian church was boasting about this, saying it was evident, like, we are so into grace that we're going to let this slide, is probably what they were saying. Like, we believe in salvation by grace, so it's okay that this guy is sleeping with his stepmother. And Paul goes, even non-Christians know that this is messed up. Like, you guys are... You guys are, are Think about what this does to, to everybody. So here are at least three reasons why church discipline. He says this person should be removed from among you, which means removed from membership, removed from among you. Here are at least three reasons why this is, this is a loving thing. Number one, if we let people continue in unrepentant sin, like boyfriends and girlfriends sleeping together, you know, people, whatever it is, what effect, if no one does anything about that, what effect does that have on all the other members of the church? 
it makes them think, well, adultery is not a big deal. Because that that's couple, they committed adultery on each other, they got divorced, and no one did anything about it, so it must not be a big deal. So maybe it tempts, I'm more tempted towards something, right? So it, 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 it has a, a festering, uh, leaven-like a, a, a effect on the whole church. If unrepentant drunkenness is never addressed, then I guess I can get drunk, because who cares? No one seems to care. It's like if, I, if my son Micah is misbehaving, and we don't discipline him, Molly, my younger daughter, is going to go, well, I guess I can do it too, right? Because there's no consequences. So it's a loving for the local church because it shows that God takes sin seriously. Number two, it is loving for the watching world. Even if the world doesn't get it, the world, what's the number one criticism? Churches are full of hypocrites. Well, this is how Jesus told us to deal with hypocrisy. If a true hypocrite is in the church, they must be removed so that the reputation of Jesus is protected by the watch for the watching world. So the church wouldn't say, well, look, this guy's sleeping with his girlfriend. You guys are hypocrites. Well, no, that person should be removed from membership ultimately. And number three, it is loving for the individual. Because if we don't warn a person who's about to spiritually die, if we don't sound the warning, it's like, you know, if a tornado is coming into town and we don't sound the alarm, we're accountable, right, for the people who get hit because we didn't warn them. This is a severe act of mercy to say, listen, we love you enough to say, if you continue down this road of sexual immorality, like unrepentant, you will show yourself to not be a true Christian and you will not be saved. And so we love you enough to say, your public testimony is not credible anymore and we are going to remove you from membership. So it's loving for the individual to wake them up. It's a last ditch effort to say, don't drive your car over the cliff. It's the last ditch effort to say, please don't, please come back. So pick it up in verse 3. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Pause there. Do you see? Handing him to Satan simply means removing him from membership in the church, putting him in the realm of Satan, outside of the local church protection. You, you hand him over to Satan's realm. Why? Not because you hate him. For the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Hopefully, the last-ditch effort of removal of membership is so serious that the person wakes up in their sin and misery and goes, this is not what I want. I want the Lord Jesus back in my life, and they repent and come back to the church. And in that case, the church receives them with open arms, absolutely receives them with open arms if there is repentance at that point. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened for Christ. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. There's pause right there. Look at verse 11 really carefully here. I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, claims to be a Christian, right? If he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. That certainly includes eating the Lord's Supper. And it includes really just kind of casual fellowship. If, if, if I have a Christian friend who is caught in a permanent lifestyle of sexual morality, greed, idolatry, drunkenness is mentioned here, and I'm just hanging out with him casually, like we're just hanging out like good old times, Paul says no. 
If you're going to meet with them, it needs to be about repentance. And otherwise, we are to, stay, we are to keep a distance from them, not to associate or eat with that person. Uh, and verse 12 will explain a little bit more. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. Now, do you see in verses 12 and 13 that there is an outside and an inside to a church? We don't judge those who are what? Outside. Because the world is lost. But we're not to go walking around saying, oh, I'm not going to hang out with you because you're a sinner. Well, they don't claim to be Christian. So it's okay to hang out with a prostitute like Jesus is with a prostitute and leads her to Christ or whatever it is. Uh, take that last sentence carefully, what I mean by that. But uh, you, you can reach out to someone who's lost in sin, who is like a drunkard, who doesn't claim to be a Christian. And you can absolutely meet with them and try to win them to Christ. That's not what he's saying. If, if they're not claiming to be a Christian, it's a different matter than what we're doing. But if they claim to be a brother, Paul says, okay, there's an inside to the church and there's an outside. We don't judge the outsiders. Who do we judge? The insiders, those who claim to be believers, if they are walking, we are called to hold each other accountable to what we profess to be. And if our lifestyle does not match up with a repentant person, we are called to hold each other to account, which is a kind of judgment within the local body of Christ. And he actually says, eventually, there needs to be a purging of that permanently evil, you know, that unrepentant person from among you at the end of verse 13. Thoughts on that? Well, it covers more than just like behavior. It covers, and we'll we'll look at some of this more. But it covers doctrine too. Like, you can you can be a you know, from a worldly perspective, a genuinely nice, good person, but if you're embracing something that goes contrary to like the core essentials of Christianity, um, and even what we agree to, you know, this is our emphasis and whatever. As a church, if somebody is pushing something. Uh, promoting something that goes against like our, how we do ministry, how we preach the gospel, how we do stuff, that falls under the same dangerous category as like sexual immorality, drunkenness, and that sort of thing. Um, and so doctrine and what we believe and, and how we actually work that out, that matters just as much as this other stuff does. And just to make a point, just to be clear here, it's not talking about some sort of disagreement on like a third level issue or second level issue. This is a central, like if, if someone denies the Trinity, if, if a member of our church says, hey, I no longer believe Jesus is eternally begotten of the Father. I believe he is a, a created being of God. It, now, I don't, I hope that doesn't happen. But if somebody says, hey, I no longer believe that Jesus is eternal like the Father. I believe he's a created being. Well, then that is going to start a one-on-one -on -one confrontation, a two or three. And if that person says, no, I'm holding on to the doctrine that Jesus is a created being. He's not eternal. He's of a separate nature from the Father. That is a fundamental false doctrine. It's, it's essential to the gospel. And we would have to say, okay, if you hold on to that without repentance, that person would have to be removed because they're misrepresenting a central gospel issue. Uh, we, we can have all kinds of disagreements about, you know, worship styles or things like that that are much different uh, level of importance. But when it comes to how we are justified, is it by works or by faith? If a person says, no, we are saved by our works. Okay, that's a, an essential error to the doctrine, a core issue, uh, the center circle on the dartboard, right, of importance. And in those issues, yeah, that would also be an issue of, of, of loving uh, church discipline as well. Any other thoughts on that? I would just say if all of us would think we, we want people to love us enough to come after us if we are in sin. I mean, we do not want to be comfortable in our sin. We want people to love us enough to do this to us. It's, it's the loving thing to do to come after people and sin. And, like, it would be a terrible thing to just let you go. Yeah, so if this is a loving thing. We have to see it as a loving thing. And we want to have that concern for people if they are drifting, to, to love them enough to go after them. And let me mention, okay, this, this, is, this is getting kind of into the weeds, but this is an important point. Um, 
This may sound even more str- – I mean, some of this stuff may sound unusual, but this is going to sound probably particularly interesting. Okay, so follow me on this point. If th- – this is something that I've seen happen in other churches. I, mean, I actually know a couple. I could tell you the story. I knew a couple where uh, the wife committed adultery on her husband, and then eventually their marriage ended in a divorce. My wife and I both knew them. And – what happened was they were a member of another church. I will not say what church. They were a member of another church in this area. And what happened was the wife simply removed herself from membership in the church quietly, and she just went to another church. There is a fundamental misunderstanding of church membership when a church lets someone rem- – so it's, it's kind of like quit before you get fired. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, okay, I know I'm doing something really bad, but I'm just going to quietly remove my name from the role. I'm just going to say, hey, can you all just, just kind of quietly remove my name, and I'm going to go to another church and be a part of that church. That, that membership is a two-way commitment, remember? It's like a handshake. You have to have both people have to extend their hand, like the soccer team. Like, I'm trying out, right, and then we agree that you join. It's a two-way commitment, but it has to also be a two-way commitment to, to dissolve the, 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 the membership. So if, if in our church, say, there was a case where, you know, one of these, like, the boyfriend and girlfriend are sleeping together and they won't stop, they want to just quietly remove their name from membership just so they can kind of get away with something and then move to another church and quietly join another church. That is something that we do not think is biblical to allow. What we would say is if a person is in a state of discipline and they're trying to remove themselves just to kind of avoid the consequences, we would say we're going to love you enough that we're not going to let that happen. We are going to actually follow through with what the Bible teaches. We're not going to allow you to just kind of dis- disappear, because that wouldn't help anybody in this case. We would say, no, we're going to hold on to that handshake until we've walked through the proper steps that both Jesus and Paul clearly command in the New Testament. And, I mean, I know to a lot of people that sounds like strange, but I do think that's consistent with a biblical reading here. And from your Hebrews 13 passage, we have to. Yes, because we're, accountable, we're for the, accountable for the individuals. Let me just shift gears here. I mean, it's not really shifting gears. If you have another sheet of paper, it's, it's the biblical obligations uh, page. It's a couple of sheets stapled together. We want to read through uh, this sheet. And we will, give a, we will take a break at about 9.15 or so, about 15 minutes or so. So uh, we're going to read through this. Greg, could you start us off reading the first page on biblical obligations of the elders to North Avenue Church Body. So this first page is to hold us accountable for this kind of stuff, which is, uh, which is important. Yeah, okay. That first little paragraph there, it says, As shepherds and overseers of a local church, elders are entrusted with teaching, protecting, leading, equipping, and caring for the corporate church body and her individual members. The following, again, is an overview of the requirements for elders as spelled out within the Scriptures. And so when we say the elders' covenant, this isn't just, you know, a half-hearted commitment. This is our pledge. This is our giving of ourselves to every one of you and to each other um, in the things we're about to write. Like we're putting our, pouring our whole lives into being this and doing this. First, to help train up future elders and deacons according to the criteria assigned to them in the scripture. Do we just want me to read through this and I think so. Don't not talk about each one. Well, we, we could break down some of these as we go. If, y'all, if, y'all, if there's a particular thing y'all want to point okay, out. Okay, that's fine. All right, so that's the first one. Secondly, to prayerfully seek wisdom from the Lord in guiding our church community and stewarding her resources to the best of our ability based on our study of the scriptures and our following of the Holy Spirit who inspired all scripture. I do want to pause there. Um, something you can always pray for us, something we really try to to be grounded in is that Every single decision we make, any 
path we take as a church, we want to be able to give clear biblical evidence as to why that's what we're doing. And if we can't give that, we shouldn't do it. Now, there's, there's clear verses, passage and verse say, okay, we know specifically, and then there's wisdom that we gain from studying the scriptures that shapes what we do. But if we can't ground it in the Bible, then we don't need to do it. And that's our pledge to you is that prayerfully, humbly, everything we do is going to be based on the clear teaching of Scripture. Um, and, you know, in a congregational setting, that's, we'll talk more about that in a second, but that's why it's so important that we do that because you guys read the same Bible we do. That's why we, we have our Bibles open and we, we want that is so that you can see that what we're doing, we're trying to lead biblically, it's actually what the Bible says. And you can see that from the text. Um, we want it to be clear to you, not just to us, why we're doing what we're doing. Um, so moving on to the next one, we are covenanting to care for the church and seek her growth in love, truth, holiness, and unity in the gospel. Um, next, to provide teaching and counsel from the whole of Scripture, whether that unchanging teaching is considered in season or out of season by our ever-changing culture. Could we stop yeah. one second? Yeah, go for it. Don't you think that's also why we're going to teach expository? Yeah. Were we going to talk about yes, expository? Yes, I do, I, I do want to talk or about Do you want to do that, that right now since no, we're, that might, or, well, or wait? We could wait. Let's we wait, let's okay, wait right, but we'll come back okay. to that for sure. Right. <clears throat> um, okay, next. We covenant to equip the members of the church for the work of ministry. And so the thing we pray, we desire, is that through all the teaching and instruction that we give, you are better able to follow Jesus and live for him in your home, in your job, in your community, and all of that. And just, I want to say, that's my sermon text tomorrow, Ephesians 4, the, the verse in the, in the parentheses. That, you'll hear a lot more about that, Lord willing, okay. tomorrow afternoon. Um, next, we covenant to be on guard against false teachers and teachings. Um, and man, that, you know, you've heard it said, a shepherd has a voice for his sheep, and then he has a voice for the wolves. Um, when we will try to be as gracious, kind, humble as we can be, but when we deal with people and doctrines that go contrary to Scripture, there's going to be a firmness, there's going to be a sobriety, um, a seriousness to that uh, because of what we're dealing with. When there is false, false teaching leads us from Christ. And so when we have to deal with that, uh, we will take that as seriously as it deserves. Uh, next, we covenant to lovingly lead the process of biblical church discipline when necessary for the glory of God, the good of the one discipline, and the health of the church as a whole. And lastly, we covenant to set an example and join members in fulfilling the obligations of church membership stated below. That last one's important simply because, yes, we may be the, the leaders of the church, the, the elders, but we aren't exempt from living a, 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 the, the Christian life the way you are. Like, we have the same obligations, the same responsibilities to love our families, to, you know, love our wives, to raise our children and love them, to, you know, live in this world and preach the gospel and, and all that. We have the same obligations in our own lives that you do. So it's not like we're asking you to do something that we're not doing ourselves. Like, we are fellow travelers, fellow pilgrims, fellow Christians with you um, in the basic Christian life. So, Scott, can you pick up with the next section? Yeah, biblical obligations of the members to the North Avenue Church body. As those who have experienced the grace of a life changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have the opportunity to reflect the character of Christ through the pursuit of godly attitudes and actions and the rejection of those that are contrary to Scripture. The Bible refers to this reality as living by the Spirit. 
The requirements of this membership covenant are in no way intended as an addition to the biblical obligations of a believer. Rather, this document functions primarily as an accessible yet non-exhaustive explanation of what the scriptures teach about the obedience that saving faith produces. I covenant to submit. So, so th- th- just to be clear, this is for all members. This next part is for all members of the church, elders and uh, all members to- together. This is, is a pretty weighty thing just to read, but this is just the biblical requirements of, of everyone. And it's a weighty thing, but it's just we're just following biblical requirements. Yeah, there's a reason why there's the parenthesis with the scripture after each sentence, because everything yeah. is accounted for biblically. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it says, I covenant to submit to the authority of the scriptures as the final and decisive word on all issues of life and doctrine of behavior and belief. I covenant to pursue the Lord Jesus Christ through a regular practice of the spiritual disciplines, including Bible reading, prayer, and loving fellowship with the other members of our local church. I covenant to follow the command and example of Jesus by participating in the ordinances prescribed to his church, by being baptized after my conversion as a public display of the truth of my union with Christ in his death and resurrection, by regularly remembering and celebrating the person work of Christ through communion. I covenant to regularly participate in the life of North Avenue Church by attending weekly services engaging in gospel-centered community and serving the other members of this church. As Hebrews 10 says, we commit to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. I covenant to wisely steward the resources God has given me, including time, talents, spiritual gifts, and finances. This includes giving that is sacrificial, cheerful, and voluntary. I covenant to strive by the Holy Spirit's grace and power to walk in holiness in all areas of life as an act of worship to Jesus Christ, I make it my aim to put my ungodly attitudes and actions to death by the Spirit's strength. I covenant below, oh here, I, below are a few examples of actions addressed in the scriptures. I will practice complete chastity unless married, and if married, complete fidelity within heterosexual and monogamous marriage. This means, among other things, that regardless of my marital status, I will pursue purity and fight against lust and all sexual temptation toward immoral practices such as adultery, premarital sex, homosexual behavior, pornography, and sexually perverted speech. If married, I will seek to preserve the gift of marriage and agree to walk through steps of marriage reconciliation in North Avenue Church, including meeting with the elders before pursuing divorce from my spouse. I will refrain from illegal drug use and drunkenness. I will fight my temptation to gossip, slander, and cause disunity in the church. I will forgive from my heart offenses committed against me by others because I have been forgiven of so much more by Jesus. And then uh, I covenant to use my freedom in Christ to best serve and love others while resisting the temptation to abuse my liberty by presenting stumbling blocks to another. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. I covenant to submit to the discipline of God through his Holy Spirit by following the biblical procedures for church discipline where sin is evident in another. The hope of such discipline being repentance and restoration. Receiving righteous and loving discipline when approached biblically by fellow believers. I covenant to do the following when I sin, confess my sin to God and to fellow believers, repent and seek help to put my sin to death. I covenant to submit to the elders and other appointed leaders of the church and diligently strive for unity and peace within the church. I covenant to do the following should I leave the church for righteous reasons to notify the elders to seek another church with which I can carry out my biblical responsibilities as a believer. Jerry, reflections on, I know know it's it's a whole lot of things here in this this text. Yeah, it's... He'd say, well, it is, Scott, it's right, it's weighty um, for both the elders and for all of us as, as members of the church. But that's why, I mean, it's such a joy, isn't it, to be part of a body where this is, where we're in agreement on this, even though it's so countercultural, I think. What a great joy to be with, and I think that's what I love about our church, 
Scott, you're talking about, you look at the folks and you just say, man, these are people who believe just like I do. They want me to be more godly. They're going to hold me accountable. It's what we want. And uh, so I think it's, uh, even though it's a little bit weighty, pretty weighty, maybe really weighty, it's, it's a glorious thing to be part of a body like this. Okay, we've got a few minutes before a break. Let's go back to the nine marks sheet, the single sheet, and we're going to start on the first one. We're, we can move through these relatively quickly here, and then we'll take our break. Number one is uh, expositional preaching or expository preaching. Um, Scott, why don't, I'll put you on the spot. Why do, we, why do we emphasize preaching through books of the Bible? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, mean I would say it's because... Like if you're doing, like you just mentioned this in your sermon. Like if it was just picking whatever we wanted to pick, we we're gonna pick hobby horses. Like I'll be preaching redeeming the time, like every single time, uh, <laughs> stuff like that. You're gonna be preaching what you want to preach. Like I was thinking this week, there's no way in the world I would ever preach on the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter one if we were never doing like expository preaching. But you did preach on it. But that. I did preach on it because we're committed to expository. I'm so glad we did. Like it exposes everyone to the whole counsel of God. You cannot avoid hard passages. And I would just say, like, we grew up with my dad doing this kind of yeah. preaching. He would go, he'd go New Testament book, Old Testament book, New Testament book, and he's go, going through every single verse in, in that. Pat, and seeing my dad labor, like, is so hard, like, knowing how much time and energy and effort, because he, he wasn't preaching whatever he wanted to preach. You no, know, he's having to preach what the Bible says and to see how hard he worked on that. And, like, the bit of it, I look back now and think, what a privilege to have set under expository preaching because I got all this doctrine, all this the biblical counsel of God, and when I became a Christian, like, it all began to make sense. So it's just a glorious thing to be able to sit under this. And it's, 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 uh, it, it forces you to deal with text that you would never deal with. Like, text that there's no way I'd be doing this. But then you, you're forced, you yourself are forced to study it. And the, and the whole congregation is forced and benefits, really, from getting the whole text. I remember when you were at, when Mark, I'm going to go back to when Mark was, like, nine months old as a believer. <laughs> oh. um, I wasn't going, but I didn't know you when you were nine months old. Like, Mark's thinking. And man, Mark had three hobby horses, or uh -huh. two, maybe one and a half. That is correct. I was like, man, someday, Mark, I bet you're going to love some more stuff. <laughs> and, and, and you see that now. As you, isn't it the whatever the book you're you preaching get excited through about, is probably your favorite book? Yeah, you get excited about whatever you happen to yeah. be in. And man, what a glorious thing to see that it's just not this one thing, but it's all of Scripture that's, that's, that's great. And, uh, and I think that happens in a deal like this. I also think it teaches people how to read their Bibles for themselves. Because if I'm just picking my favorite verses every week, then you're not going to learn what the theme of 1 Corinthians is about or how to put the whole book together. If we're walking verse by verse and reading the sentence and explaining it and reading the next sentence and explaining it, people go, oh, I can do this too. It's not that difficult. I mean, just you read the text and you figure out what it means and you just say what it says. So I, I think it's a good, useful tool to have a higher view of the Bible uh, at, the, at the end of the day. Can I say one more thing yeah. on that? Like preaching, you know, systematically through books and going bit by bit through it, it actually lays a foundation for when we do like non like straight through books, like more topical, because even then it's not like typical topical. Sorry, right. that was a mouthful. Um, <laughs> um, but it's whenever we do a topical sermon, you know, and we know because we've been working through it, one scripture really does address an issue that we're dealing with, but we're not just picking it because, you know, whatever, we're going to treat it from what Scripture says. So even when we, you know, deal with this issue or that issue, we're going to go to the text, and we're going to let the text inform us how we think about it. And it's not that we want to come to the text, because when we do expositional preaching consistently, we're, we're training ourselves 
to listen to Scripture and go with Scripture. So whenever we deal with a topic, it's not, well, here's what I already think about it. Let me find some verses that sound like they agree with what I think about it. It's, here's a topic that we need to talk about. How's the Bible going to address this? Mm-hmm. How's the Bible going to talk to this issue? And that, Because that's the only voice that ultimately matters. And so topical preaching has actually transformed a little bit. It's, it's not how most people think topical because it's a biblically grounded topical preaching. Mm-hmm. And so no matter whether we're going through a book or dealing with some issues, we're still doing exposition. Yeah. Uh, point number two here, <clears throat> biblical theology. Just, uh, this will be fast. The, the idea here is how reading the Bible as a story, really, that, that, that grows over time, and uh, the, the longer you go in the story, the more uh, you have something called progressive revelation, where the further you go, the lights get brighter and brighter, and you're able to see the Bible as a unified story going from the, the creation and fall all the way to redemption in a new earth. And f- always remembering where we are in the Bible affects how we interpret what's, what's going on in Scripture. Um, number three... A biblical understanding of the gospel. Obviously, um, our church, we want to be very focused on the gospel, to get the gospel right. We want all of our members. You know, y'all may have noticed if you, sign, if you wrote in the membership form, there's a, there's a part where you give your testimony, but then what's underneath it? Give us a definition of the gospel. And the reason we do that is because we want all of us in the church to be able to give a gospel presentation in under 60 seconds. And you guys, I mean, when we read them, I get so encouraged because you, you, you give us those basic pieces of the gospel, and we want all of our members to know the gospel, be able to articulate it in, in 60 seconds if possible. Uh, number four, biblical understanding of conversion. This is a huge, and this is one of my hobby horses. If I had a hobby horse, this would be, this would be one I'd go to all the time. We want to get conversion right. Let's just, again, I'm not trying to be a jerk here, but, you know, historically speaking, Baptist churches have a really hard time on this one, because what, what happens in most Baptist churches? You can talk about emotional appeal. You get someone emotionally vulnerable at a moment in a service, and you say, hey, come on down the aisle. They come down. They pray with the pastor. They may even sign a card, write something in their Bible. They prayed the prayer, and whether their life changes in the future or not becomes irrelevant. The point is, you came down the aisle, you prayed with the pastor, and he said you're saved. So now you're in, and if you ever doubt it, that's Satan telling you that you're not a Christian, and you've got it signed in your Bible, the date and the time, when it happened, don't ever doubt it. That teaching is unbelievably destructive in local churches. I think it's one of the most dangerous false teachings that exists in the Baptist world because it's so prevalent. And, um, you know, even Billy Graham, who I think popularized this method, which I don't think was good. Uh, Billy Graham even said that he thinks that far less than maybe 20% of the people who came forward in his revivals to get saved actually got saved. So even Billy Graham knew that four out of five people coming forward are not genuinely getting converted, but yet it looks like they're getting converted. And we want to have a biblical understanding of of, of what the new birth and conversion are. Can I say one thing on that? Guys, this is one of the reasons why we don't like try to have an emotional, like whipped up appeal at the end of our service. Um, you know, play the, play, play the song, you know, 15 times. There's one more person, one more person. Um, it's simply because God is the one who changes. And um, when, we, when we try to put the emphasis on, you know, how can we just whip up one more emotion, whatever like that, we're, we're telling people to put their hope in the wrong place. Um, it's we preach the word. We call for people to respond and believe throughout the sermon. Um, but it's not necessary to have a specific time at the end as though that's the only time when you respond. Um, some people, they got to listen to stuff and then they go home and they're thinking about it, reading the word and then, oh, wow, now I get it. Mm-hmm. And so did they miss their chance because they didn't go forward at the end of a service? 
Like, so we, we just have to be, we don't want to manipulate people. We're going to call people to repent, believe, call people to faithfulness. Um, but conversion is something that God's going to do, and it could happen at the beginning of the sermon, it could happen in the middle of the sermon, end of the sermon, talking with someone at, you know, after church, when they're home. Um, God works when God works, and so we're not going to try to foster um, this mindset that says, you know, only right now at this point in the service can you actually respond. It could be a number of places. Just to give an example of that, Grant Crane, who's a member of our church, I love Grant and Haley and their new daughter, Caroline. Uh, Grant came to our church. He would say he was a false convert. He wasn't truly converted. He was here for maybe, I don't know, a number of months. How was he converted? He was converted not in our church service. He was not converted coming down an aisle. He was converted at work while he was working with chemicals. He had gloves, special gloves on. He was listening to a sermon in his, in his earbuds. During that sermon, while he was listening at work, de- dealing with dangerous chemicals and whatever all he has, he started weeping. And he's like, uh-oh, I can't touch my face. So he said he quickly put the stuff down, took off. He had to quickly get off his, his special equipment. He ran into a bathroom because he was embarrassed. And he was converted at work. Dealing with chemicals. And it comes back a new person. So that's why we don't try to pressure. Like, it's not the last five minutes of a sermon where you can only get converted. You can get converted wherever the Holy Spirit can be, which is everywhere. And you would have to say, you know, going from the golden chain in Romans 8, whoever God calls, he's going to justify. Mm-hmm. And so that's his business at what time and at which chemical shop it's going to happen. <laughs> All right, let's take about a seven-minute or eight-minute break, and then we'll pick back up in a few minutes. Thank you all.